the benzodiazepines and the SSRIs, which seems to be all that psychology and psychiatry really have to work with. And in terms of drugs, we're sort of a fail, aren't we? Is that why you're excited about the potential use of psychedelics? You know, looking at just uh, the current state of medicine and how we're treating mental illness is truly disappointing. But these really are um, life-changing medicines for depression, for mental illness, for connection, for bonding. Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin, and welcome back to The Vibe Show. Uh, Lately, we're digging into some of the really controversial topics that my audience tells me they're really confused about. And they'll ask me, are you, do you think CBD is a good idea? Do you think psychedelics are a good idea? And here's the thing, I'm still in my own discovery process uh, with both of these topics, but I have a good friend here locally whose name is Dr. Parth Gandhi, and he reached out and asked me to be on the show about psychedelics. He's on the cutting edge and he's ready to bring um, psychedelics into the treatment of neuropsychology here in Utah. And I've been curious about it, and I've also been very skeptical about it. And so I told him, I'm like, Parth, if if I do this interview, I'm going to ask you hard questions, right? Because I have my doubts about whether, you know, bringing in MDMA and uh, basically, you know, what most of us my age think of as some street drugs into the treatment of psychiatry, I'm not against it, but I have my concerns Um because there's a lot of money that's going to be made by the people who bring it in. So this interview is going to be pretty hard hitting. I am going to ask him hard questions because he's excited about it. Um, Dr. Gandhi is a neuropsychologist and he's researched in a number of areas. He worked with families and youth in distress, did a lot of neuropsychological assessments. Uh, He trained at BYU with a very a world-renowned neuropsychologist, BYU being the university that I taught at for many years. And he did some postdoc training at Columbia in New York City, uh, worked with an autistic population, and he's been the principal investigator on several NIH studies. So right now, he's been really diving into the cognitive, social, and creative effects of psychedelics on specifically autism and concussion, Um, also addiction and depression. And I've seen some good research on what psychedelics can do for people with PTSD. Um, But we're going to ask him questions today about other applications of psychedelics. Because, you know, the reason I'm interested in it isn't that I'm interested in promoting a new class of uh, drugs, because that is what these are. Let's make no mistake about it. These are These are definitely pharmaceuticals, and we got to get that straight in our mind. But, you know, I do trust Parth to uh, dig a little deeper because I've been to his yoga class. Um, He teaches yoga and meditation and mindfulness in Salt Lake City, and sometimes I'll go down um, on a Saturday or Sunday and go to his class. And he really believes that psychedelics are a significant answer to help awaken the unconscious and help or even cure the ill. So he's been a traditional psychologist, but he's really getting into ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which I want to know more about. And he's helping people integrate parts of their brain using psychedelics. 
So welcome to The Vibe Show, Dr. Parth Gandhi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is going to be fun because I think my audience, when you say the word psychedelics, just transport back to the 70s. So take us through it. What's what's a psychedelic and why should we care? Well, wow. Why should we care? Um, psychedelics, yeah, they, they certainly have uh, the notion of the 60s and 70s, and the hippie era and the, the uh, cult culture of what was going on back in the day. Um, but psychedelics, by definition, are meaning-making medicines. They uh, allow for mind expansion and um, the unraveling of unconsciousness and um, bringing it to, uh, to the forefront so that we can explore it. Uh, and why should we care is such a grand question. Um, we're using psilocybin to study uh, or uh, to treat depression and addiction, MDMA or uh, Molly or ecstasy, as it's referred to on the street, is, is being used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder with really high effectiveness rates. So uh, we're excited about everything that's happening in the, in the research world right now and that uh, even government controls are being lifted. Uh, those medicines, psilocybin and MDMA, were uh, uh, reported you know, by the FDA as breakthrough therapies, which means they're going to be fast-tracked through Schedule two and three um, phases at, at, you know, with clinical research. So everything that's happening right now is really exciting and accelerating. Talk about schedule one, two, and three. These are the phases of the clinical trial process. Where are psychedelics in that process? Well, uh, so psilocybin and MDMA are in phase three uh, FDA clinical trials. So uh, most of the stage two, the phase two, sorry, clinical trials were completed last in the last couple of years. There are about 10 uh, clinical sites across the country, Johns Hopkins, uh, in Boulder, in Texas. Uh, they're kind of all over, but uh, we're now moving into and uh, into stage three, uh, phase three clinical trials. So super exciting to basically be just dosing, figuring out how much and how often, and then what the therapy is, and that's really the biggest thing. The medicine has to be integrated with uh, certain kinds of therapy uh, uh, to be effective. And so MDMA and psilocybin will never be given out like an SSRI, like Zoloft. It'll always have to be governed in uh, a clinical room uh, in the setting of therapy. So I've been really concerned for a long time about the toxicity of the long-term negative health effects of the benzodiazepines and the SSRIs, which seems to be all that psychology and psychiatry really have to work with in terms of, um, you know, using the actual biochemical state of the body. Obviously, there's talk therapy and many interventions, but... Um, in terms of drugs, we're sort of a fail, aren't we? Is that why you're excited about the oncoming um, potential use of psychedelics? Absolutely. You know, looking at just uh, the current state of medicine and how we're treating mental illness is truly disappointing. Uh, the options for those that especially have treatment-resistant conditions, uh, treatment-resistant depression, addiction, post-traumatic stress, 
Uh, and the efficacy rates of, say, psilocybin, there's a study from 2012 that suggests up to 78% of those with treatment-resistant depression uh, at, at the six-month marker have significant decreases in symptoms of depression. That's really significant. With MDMA, it's, it's just slightly less, 68% uh, reporting a, a uh, almost a re complete remission in those traumatic symptoms. And it's really the process, the coupling of therapy with the medicines and the entire process that I think is really, really beneficial for the client. Uh, but truly it, it is a change in our paradigm of how to, how we treat mental illness. Okay. And I know that you talk about ketamine. MDMA is known on the street as Molly or ecstasy. I'm sure that scares some of my followers, and I would love for you to talk more about that. But psilocybin, I think, is more natural and less like synthetic and isolated. Talk about that and ketamine, and then walk us through the process. Like, how does a therapist use these substances? What do we do once we're under the influence of these psychedelics? So let me start with psilocybin, which is a natural occurring uh, substance um, in magic mushrooms or psilocybin cubensis. So these are mushrooms that have grown uh, through millennia for the longest period of time. And uh, there are markers throughout different cultures in the Greek traditions, in the Aztec traditions, where we see that in ceremonial processes, these are used to help people. Um, MDMA is actually a synthesized product. Uh, in the 70s, uh, a chemist named uh, Sasha Shulgin created this and several other substances. Uh, and these work on the brain in different ways. So psilocybin works on the serotonin receptors. Uh, MDMA actually also in a different way works on the serotonin receptors. Um, in terms of your question around therapy, it's a process of integration. So first of all, uh, in, in ceremony or in even a clinic, uh, a therapeutic session, we're setting up a process of safety first. So it allows the person to come into their experience. Then we guide them through that experience. Uh, with MDMA, if we're treating PTSD, uh, it's the opportunity to re-experience the trauma from a different mindset, from a safer place. Most people with PTSD don't allow themselves to uh, ex experience any of the triggers associated with the trauma. And that's what's so pervasive about PTSD. It, it, uh, it, it keeps them very, very stuck. Uh, the, the MDMA uh, allows them to re-experience it uh, from a place of... Um, well, mysticism and love and opportunity to, to see themselves from a different point of view. MDMA therapy is actually a, a very structured protocol. MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Sciences, has created a protocol and trains therapists in this process. And the essential goals in that are to, to first create an alliance with the therapist and then create a process of uh, integration with the medicine. So a therapist, two therapists actually, uh, take uh, the person through on a high dose of, of the uh, MDMA medicine. 
into what could be a five or six ther uh, hour therapy session and they guide them through the same trauma that they've been avoiding that's been so triggering to them they actually do that once every month for three months and then they continue with integrated therapy sessions after that so it's a very long process uh, and um, highly effective Okay, one thing I'm worried about is that if there aren't long-term efficacy studies showing what the effects are on people who, you know, go through treatment and they use what is a drug, after all, um, do we know, do we have any long-term studies on any potential negative health effects? What do we know about toxicology on this drug and, and what possible negatives there might be? That's a great question. And, you know, I will first say that most people that use these medicines uh, use a large heroic dose of these medicines, whether it's psilocybin or LSD or MDMA, uh, even other drugs like 5-MeO, DMT, or Ibogaine. Most of them don't want to re-experience uh, that process at such a deep and large level. It's such a profound experience, but they don't necessarily want to do it again. Uh, there is you know, very little uh, physical addictive qualities. Now I'm speaking to kind of generally all of these medicines, but let's, let's talk about psilocybin, for example. Um, there, really, there is no lethal dose. There's no point where the medicine can actually kill you, which is, I think, a very, very important thing. So LD50 is the, uh, the term that's used by the FDA that would act, uh, effectively kill half the dose level that would kill half the population. There literally is no LD50 for, for psilocybin. Now that's not true of the synthetics like MDMA. Um, but uh, in addition to that, it, they're, they're non-addictive and LSD and psilocybin is actually less, uh, less toxic than sugar. And that was a, in a report by the World Health Organization a couple of years ago. Wow. Interesting. So do you have one that you prefer working with? Are you even able to work with it here in Utah yet? Or are you just kind of getting trained and gearing up because you want to be one of the first ones to be able to when that, that possibility arrives? That's a great question. So no, we don't have a clinical trial site here in Utah yet. And certainly uh, our program at Scepter as a nonprofit, we want to establish a place where that can happen here in Utah. Now that said, uh, there are I guess, 10 clinical trial sites across the country where they can deliver both MDMA and psilocybin. It's, it's as you can imagine, uh, heavily structured and rigored, and, and there are actually very few patients that can go through it. Now, what we do have at this point is ketamine. Ketamine is, uh, has been approved by the FDA for probably 40, 50 years. Uh, it has very low toxicity and has traditionally been used as an anesthetic. It's off-label use for depression uh, has been studied for about the last 20 years. And there's a lot of very, very positive things to say. Uh, it was actually recently approved by the FDA as an anti-suicide drug in the ER. It'll immediately take those feelings away from a person. So that's a really important uh, change in what's going on and how we look at uh, psychedelics and what it can do. Now, ketamine alone is being delivered at a lot of clinics, actually, but um, there's a process uh, called ketamine-assisted psychotherapy where we integrate therapy in with the medicine. So it's a two-hour session where the first hour a person is 
they're in their um, uh, kind of uh, own mind, you know, experiencing the medicine. And then as they resolve out, they start working with the, with the therapist uh, in creating an, kind of an integration model. What we know from the science is that there's about a 24-hour period after the medicine is delivered, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or ketamine, where there's a lot more neuroplasticity, meaning there's a lot more openness to change and learning and growth. And we can kind of reset those ruts in the road uh, and allow a person to look at their experience and their learning, their habits from a different perspective. Interesting. I will um, go out on a limb here and admit that I did use a psychedelic once. And it was because my brother who had been telling me that it'll change my life. It'll like, you know, like, fix neurons in my brain and make, you know, he just insisted. I agreed to do it. And I did it the one time and I had within the days afterwards, I felt like I was just in this huge creative flow. And, and by the way, I was not doing this with a licensed psychotherapist of any kind. <laughs> I was, I was doing this uh, self-administered thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I had just this just creative explosion. And over the course of several days, I came up with this whole like business idea. And I just really shifted courses. And I got out of this sort of stuck period of pain and suffering that I was in. So I did, mm -hmm. I did see those positives. Now the business model that I pursued, I spent about eight or nine full time months on it and it actually failed, um, mm -hmm. sort of failed before it got off the ground. But it did get me out of a rut. Like what what exactly happened there? That is interesting. And, and certainly I won't ask you anything about the specifics. I really appreciate you sharing your story. It makes it easier, I think, to, uh, to describe that there is often a very creative process that happens with some of these medicines. Now, our, our basic statement at Scepter is that we believe in healing the ill and bettering the well with these medicines. So it's not just the mentally ill that, that really profoundly uh, are changed by these medicines. It's a pretty well-known fact that 50-60% uh, of Palo Alto engineers are microdosing uh, LSD or psilocybin, and so it's helping them with creativity. You know, the, there was a study where they have, um, in a holographic way, how they show the external connections of the brain of the there's one brain on uh on psilocybin and the other is a placebo controlled brain and it's the strongest you see the strongest external connections visually and it's one of the things that i think really sort of changed the course of what i wanted to study and how i knew we could use these medicines to help people therapeutically because there's two main results say with psilocybin one is the shutting down of the default mode network which really creates a lot of rumination uh, in the brain now ruminating about the past is what we call depression and ruminating about the future is what we call anxiety so it allows a presence, you know, the default mode network actually works in sort of a teeter-totter relationship with the attentional network. So when we're paying attention to something and focused on something, uh, the, the DMN is quieted. But when we're not, and we're not really engaged in something, the default mode network kind of takes over. And it's that daydreaming process or ruminating process that telling us what we think about ourselves kind of in the background that can be so debilitating at times. 
Um, so that, as well as the stronger, the strength of the axonal connections creates a lot more creativity and happiness, to be honest. Yeah, that's what I hear. I had always been really scared of it. And it probably took my brother six months of like lobbying me to get me to try that. And I don't know that I've, you know, I've been in no hurry to do it again. That was several years ago. And I didn't have like any kind of, um, addictive craving to it. And it's not an addictive substance. I Mm -hmm. I think you've, you've touched on that, but you know, I have friends and colleagues running off to Peru and doing this ayahuasca thing. Is that really healing? Do they they have to just go to Peru because it's illegal here, right? And a shaman oversees it. What exactly is going on in these ayahuasca events? Yeah, that brings up so many beautiful ideas, actually. One is that um, a lot of these medicines were given traditionally. They were given in ceremony. And so one of the problems is uh, over the last century, in, uh, in especially the Western American culture, we have no context to give this medicine. We have no container to hold people safe in. And there is no shamanic principles and uh, traditions and tribe. You know, you think about the, the old ways of wisdom traditions, and it was the elders holding space uh, for the younger generation to teach them and uh, in a ceremonial setting. It wasn't an ordinary state, but a non-ordinary state that they knew they were leading people through to uh, bring them through their hero's journey, to guide them through. And we don't really have a set process except for therapy now. And that really is part of why we're, we believe in the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So whether it's psilocybin or MDMA or ketamine, there is a process that's created for that, uh, for that journey. Um, yeah. So, you know, you, t- you hear about people who had a bad trip, right? And, you know, like I said, my one experience was very, it was actually very positive. I didn't have any of that, but I was scared of that because I had heard about it. So why do people throw up when they do ayahuasca in Peru? And why do people have a bad trip and all of a sudden they're sobbing and somebody can't pull them out of the black hole they're in? Like, is that having too much or what? So uh, there's two, I think, basic ideas you're talking about uh, that I want to separate out. One, number one, more traditional medicines like ayahuasca or peyote are given more ceremonially and they often cause purging. And I think uh, many would say, shamans would say it's that purging or release or sacrifice that allows you to move to the mystical state. And it's uh, in that in ayahuasca, DMT is the medicine uh, that actually is, it's actually a naturally occurring substance in many, many things, including in the human body in trace amounts. So let's talk about bad trips uh, a little bit. So bad trips though, um, are typically Uh, related to a person fighting the experience, Uh, not necessarily uh, nausea, although nausea and that that sensation in the body can certainly really affect you. So so can smells, bad foods, things like that. Um, But generally speaking, a bad trip is kind of uh, described as fighting the experience. So in therapy, we often say, if you see a, uh, see a door, open it. If you see stairs, go up. If you see a monster, walk right up to it and ask, why, is, why are you here? What do you have to teach me? So generally speaking, don't run from experience, but open the door. And I think this leads to an important sort of next step. Who 
is then um, prepared, ready for the experience. A lot of people take these medicines not knowing you know, what's gonna happen and what to expect, and bad trips uh, often occur because uh, this non-ordinary state is very uncomfortable for people. It's not always uh, this beautiful, recreational, ecstatic experience. It can, it can be debilitating emotionally at times. It can be hard. Um, and again, that's, that's why it should be done with a therapist. Yeah. I feel like my brother was trying to be my therapist in the sense that he had done it quite a few times and he was a big fan of it. And he recognized some things that were, that I was struggling with that he thought would help me. And so he, I mean, he called me and we had like multiple phone conversations about, okay, so Robin, like nobody else, like no kids at the house, like no plans. People aren't going to come by. We're going to, he had a whole like, you know, music um, lineup that he played and he was very, very excited about it and very excited about guiding me through it. And I remember it's all coming back to me as you and I are having this conversation because it's been years, but, um, you know, and I had been very fearful of it because I was like, ah, I don't want to do substances. And, and he's like, no, 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 trust me, I'll make this positive for you. You'll be fine. There won't, it won't be a big dose. And it really was, but I remember he and I sitting out in the grass. It was, uh, in the summertime, we sat out in the grass and we had some kind of just deep, conversation where we both ended up crying and we were talking about one of our other brothers and how we had recently been at a family event and we had seen how he was treated by some people in the family and in Mm -hmm. fact and in fact maybe one of us and we we both cried as we just like felt what he must have felt and the crazy thing is is at the family event nobody acted sensitive and there certainly wasn't Mm -hmm. going to be any that kind of deep empathy and what happened there? What was going on in our minds and our connection with each other that was facilitated by a substance? Yeah. Again, thank you for sharing a personal experience, but it, it is that beauty and that openness. I think a lot of people will say uh, love, you know, often after their experience, uh, you know, even in ketamine. So we've, we're now doing ketamine therapy, right? And, and so I see clients one after the other and all they can say in their, in their description is love you know, which is both banal and profound, you know, in our experience of life, what really is most important. And so it can change your perspective. And these, all of these medicines are uh, described as heart opening. It allows connection. uh, You know, it allows intimacy and trust and alliance with the people around you. So if they're holding a safe container, uh, for you, it's easy to enter that space and show trust, uh, show forgiveness. You bring up a, an interesting point from the beginning and how he created a container for you that's so important. A person should never uh, have an experience if they don't feel safe, if they haven't set it up with intention and created a safe setting. So we call that set and setting, which is probably 80 or 90% of a positive experience setting that correctly up and having a guide to keep you safe is so important. Most people actually um, will really fight their experience or have a negative experience if they don't feel safe. Yeah, I was not actually planning on talking about my personal experience with it, but I've um, been, I've felt sort of led or prompted Mm -hmm. as I'm in the middle of a podcast episode. And I think, you know, I want to tell this story about how I actually told a close friend, I think you need to get on an SSRI, even though, you know, I think my audience would believe that I'm just, you know, categorically against that. And so feels good for me to actually talk about it. And every single thing you say, Parth, I have like, oh, now I remember this. And what I'm remembering now is that 
after the experience that we had on a psychedelic, the next day, my brother called my brother that we had shared a moment of grief and and sorrow and compassion talking about, gosh, how does it feel for him to be in his position in our family and have people see him the way that they do? And my brother that was there with me, the one who guided me through this experience, he called my little brother and mm-hmm. and and asked his forgiveness. And it, it was just so interesting to me. And I, you know, and I, I've seen my brother differently ever since then, that younger brother that we had that amazing conversation about. And so my point is that that the experience we had wasn't just a f- several hours of connection and our minds opening. It was also, and it sounds like I'm trying to sell people on this experience. And I actually don't, I don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I don't, I, I don't have a big opinion here about yes or no. That's why I wanted to have this conversation with you mm-hmm. and, and even express my concern because, you know, I don't ever want to like tell people, Hey, this drug is awesome because mm-hmm. I don't know. I really don't know. But I will say that that compassionate, um, probably 20 minutes that my brother and I had discussing my younger brother and just opening our hearts to him has changed me forever towards that younger brother. It did, it, it went way past the experience itself. Yeah. I, I am moved that you would share that experience. And that's exactly, uh, the kind of profundity that people experience with psychedelics and that word, because it, it's so limiting, because it has such a stug stigma, I wish we could change that. But these really are um, life-changing medicines for depression, for mental illness, for connection, for bonding. I have no doubt that medicines like psilocybin and MDMA will eventually be clinically used to help th- you know, therapy, like intimacy in relationships. Um, you know, and what would a world look like if we could save you know, people from depression and help their relationships, what would that world look like? You know, mental illness, depression is the number one illness of the world, 300 million people worldwide. And if we can take a big chunk out of that, you know, when I think of the number, 78% treatment resistant depression respond to this in an openness, you know, and, and changing their lives, you know, it sends shivers down my back, literally. Like I am so um moved by this that it really has shifted the direction of my career that's why we started the nonprofit company that we did to bring clinical trials here to educate we i just think it's so important that people investigate this for themselves and not to rush in but to start learning michael pollan's book last year how to change your mind um is such a great uh, starting resource. It describes his own experiences. It describes the neuroscience so well. And he's, uh, people have probably heard, he's on tons and tons of podcasts. He's often on Tim Ferriss. Um, but I can't, you know, it's really, it's meaning-making medicine. It changes people's lives. It creates a sense of love and belongingness and context for what we're doing in the way I think people crave you know, in the way tribe and ceremony used to be performed, it creates that process in people's lives. Okay, well, as promising as that sounds, and sorry to bring it back down to earth, uh, who's going to control the money here? And what's the big political fight going to look like as people try to, you know, monetize it? I mean, we're seeing a similar thing as marijuana becomes legalized Mm -hmm. around the country, mostly riding on the Trojan horse of, hey, we have an opioid problem how about we try this, which doesn't have nearly the toxicity, which I can buy into. I can buy into. I'm not entirely sure that 
we're going to see less opioid addiction until we stop prescribing it. But um, so, you know, like what's what do do you anticipate on the dark side of this that people have to be careful of? Or, you know, do you think they're going to just try to like slice and dice it and make all these different patented synthetics that could could be dangerous uh, as pharma rushes to turn it all into billion dollar industries? That's a good question. That's a good question. And I can't imagine big pharma not wanting a big piece of this because at a much higher rate, we're treating depression. So in competition with, with SSRIs, direct competition for depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, and keeping people ill, this is the other side of that. Psilocybin can literally grow, be grown at home like cannabis. You can treat depression on your own. MDMA uh, is a synthesized compound. Um, really, uh, the controlling company is MAPS, which is a nonprofit based in California. And uh, they will um, train clinicians. And and they're doing that as rapidly as they can. Uh, But certainly there's a bottleneck there in the training process. But eventually, we really think MDMA and psilocybin will be available to prescribe within three years. And so... Uh, using an integrative therapy model, it'll be available in clinics. Uh, but that said, in terms of who's going to be the controlling interest, I don't know. That's, you know, who can most efficiently produce these medicines is kind of what it comes down to. And there's, you know, there's lots of companies competing for that. Ketamine has is, is, uh, been out in the world for a very long time, and it's very, very cheap to actually buy as a medicine. It has to be given uh, by a prescriber, uh, typically in clinic. Uh, but there's some options outside of the clinic that we have. But psilocybin and MDMA, um, it'll, you know, it's up in the air and I can't imagine big pharma is not going to want a, you know, a controlling interest in it. So we'll see. Well, I have lots of Utah followers. In fact, I did dozens and dozens of lectures here on a lecture tour for over the course of six years. And so they're going to write me if I don't say it, why don't you tell Mm -hmm. us where they can follow what you're doing, where they can learn more from you. That's fantastic. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk today and uh, talk about our clinic. So our nonprofit is Scepter. It's scptr.org. O-R-G. And there we've got you know, the information about the clinical trials. We also have uh, the Intermountain Psychedelic Symposium coming up in January of 2020, where we've got major speakers. Jim Fadiman, uh, if anybody uh, knows who that is, it's, uh, he wrote the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He's an old school guy from Harvard in the 50s and 60s, uh, and he's been in this movement for 50 years. He's, uh, he's a founder in uh, transpersonal psychology uh, and uh, is now uh, the leading expert in microdosing, psilocybin and LSD, and has uh, kind of gained notoriety through a big sur- uh, survey that he did, an anecdotal survey on microdosing. But he'll be keynoting, and then um, Scepter Wellness is our clinical arm, and we're based in Mill Creek, but we'll have multiple clinics opening in the next year. And we deliver ketamine-assisted psychotherapy now. It's all legal. And so we have a process of integrative work in therapy. Um, I think we indicated we'd give uh, your listeners uh, some discounts, which I'm sure you'll, you'll put in your podcast notes. 
Yeah, we'll definitely link to where you are in our show notes. And so I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I know you're busy. And um, I mentioned in the introduction that I've been to your yoga class. In fact, oh, I didn't say this. I actually went to Dr. Gandhi's goat yoga class. Oh my gosh. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, Goat yoga. Explain goat yoga. You got to explain goat yoga because I don't even know what to say about it. It's fun. That's what it is. Yoga is supposed to be fun and bring a smile and goat yoga does. Now that's not what I routinely do. I teach a Ashtanga class uh, down in Sugar House, but uh Goat yoga is fun. Yeah, goat yoga was like, you know, we're doing the yoga poses and then there's like an assistant who would run around and put little baby goats on our backs. Yeah, and if <laughs> yeah I bet those little baby goats are a little well trained, better trained now and they can jump up on people pretty easily. <laughs> it was so cute. <laughs> you got you gotta love a baby goat. Only thing that makes yoga better is yoga with goats. That's true. And nobody got pooped on. Well, yeah, I actually didn't get pooped on. That was my one my one concern about it. And so, you know, good luck with everything that you're doing and come back when you have it all rolled out here in Utah and there's lots more to say about it. We'll do uh, take two. So thanks for being on the show, Dr. Parth Gandhi. Oh, thank you, Robin. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs>